HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Essex Market. Essex Market is New York City's most historic public market, proudly located on Manhattan's Lower East Side. Find the freshest produce, meat, fish, and specialty foods from over 30 unique vendors. Learn more about the market's family of small neighborhood businesses at EssexMarket.nyc. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And it is the season, ho, 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 tis the season as we record this. Yes, it's Christmas time. However, it's a very different season this year. Uh, We won't be gathering for large feasts, or if we will, it'll be smaller numbers and far safely distanced from one another, perhaps outside if you can bear the cold. But Nonetheless, it is the season upon us, so we can at least think about food and talk about food and talk about feasts, because so many of the dishes that we associate with the idealized Christmas feasts, and that's what we have right now to deal with, that's the the fantastic Charles Dickens uh, descriptions of wonderful meals, they really came to be thanks to the Victorians mince pies, think of, yeah, mince pies, puddings, roast goose, chestnuts on the open fire, and fruitcake. The feast was a perfect way to gather the family together. Well, forget about that, but it was. It was the perfect way to gather family together and to bring about the spirit of giving and peace and goodwill, and that is something that we should not lose. And of course, as I mentioned, Charles Dickens, the, the Dickensian dinners or will you know always live on. He had quite a hand in creating how the those Christmases started to be celebrated, um, illustrating feasts in many of his stories, from the Christmas dinner to a Christmas carol, and depictions of tables laden with rich dishes abound. So I thought, well. Who better to talk about this than somebody who makes the Victorian period her specialty? And that is Annie Gray. Annie Gray is a food historian, one of the, uh, I must say, most distinguished food historians, the queen of food historians um, from Britain. And, And she is a writer and a scholar. She specializes in the British food and dining, particularly of the Victorian period. 
She is a consultant and a broadcaster. She's on the, she's one of the, um, she is the, is the resident historian on BBC Radio 4's The Kitchen Cabinet. And she sometimes is a presenter on documentaries, including The Sweet Makers, Victorian Bakers, and Victoria and Albert, The Royal Wedding. She has also worked in costume as a historical interpreter, and I love those. I love when people do that, you know, playing various cooks and kitchen maids. And She is definitely the person to go to for Victorian food. Annie, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Did I hear you say the other day when we were talking that you were, in fact, working on a book about Christmas food? <laughs> yes, finally, it seems like. <laughs> um, I've been giving talks on Christmas food for, oh, honestly, I don't know, probably about the last 10 or 15 years. And um, finally, I am writing up effectively those talks into a book on the history of the British Christmas dinner. And of course, the British Christmas dinner isn't just the British Christmas dinner, the kind of ideal that we have has spread across the globe. So all of those things you mentioned in your introduction, which make me salivate. Yes. Uh, yeah, they they are. Oh, we, we owe a lot, I think, to the Victorian era and, and to some extent to earlier eras as well. But yeah. Um, It's quite exciting to finally (laughs) be able to talk about all of these things and talk about the origins of turkey and mince pies and Christmas cake and Brussels sprouts and all those things that would, uh, yeah, British Christmas wouldn't be a Christmas without, apparently. That's right. Well, in, in America, of course, we have our Thanksgiving holiday just before this, a month before, and many of those dishes are sort of get repeated on our yeah. Christmas and it's tables. one of the reasons that we do it too. I mean, in all honesty, one of the reasons turkey is such a big thing in the UK these days is because of all of those images of American Thanksgiving. Hmm. Turkey has been associated with Christmas since the Tudor period, but it, it wasn't the Christmas meat. It was just one among many. Beef was the big Christmas meat for a lot of history. So turkey right. really wasn't the majority choice in the UK until the 1960s. Um, and I think a lot of that is because we kept seeing all these amazing pictures of American turkeys at Thanksgiving and thought, oh, come on, we want some of that. But of course, we don't have a Thanksgiving of our own, so it all had to go towards Christmas. I initially came to you and wanted to do a talk on the history of fruitcake. Now, there's a, a an American author, young American author uh, named Jason Schreiber, and he's recently published a book on uh, fruit cake. Cakes with I fruit love in fruit cake. <laughs> it's one of the best things in the world. Yes. And... And I thought, oh, a book on fruitcake. Well, it's not exactly fruitcake as we know it as that, as many people say, that abhorrent sweet that makes its way from the the proverbial story, one household one year to the next household another year, the same cake. No, (laughs) it is many different recipes about the cake, but he does, you know, include some, you know, a little bit of background, not quite the history that, that I wanted to talk about, but I did want to give him credit for, you know, planting that idea in my head. And um, I happen to be somebody who loves fruitcake, uh, yeah. you know, especially one that's been And it been needs rehabilitating. Well I do remember <laughs> cooking one once for a friend of mine who lives near Boston. Um, she was very polite and I couldn't get the ingredients, not properly. And what I turned mm. out, it was okay, but it wasn't what I'd call a fruitcake. Right. And it wasn't right. until after I'd made it and everyone stood around and looked at it that she said exactly what you've just said, that, oh, well, actually here... <laughs> 
fruitcake is something that you make and then you give to your relatives and they give to someone else. And, <laughs> yes. and then, I mean, it's only then that I realised that American fruitcake, or at least what was called fruitcake by uh, my friend, wasn't what I'd call fruitcake. I mean, I'm sorry, that what was all those colory bits in there that were sort of, what are they, melon coloured with food colour? I was like, this yeah. is, no, yeah, Emily, yeah. this is because you've never had a mm. real fruitcake. So, yeah. So, all right. So, so tell me about this real food fruitcake and and what some of you some of the background on that um well fruitcake's one of those things that's always been celebratory really because it's expensive so if you go back to the medieval period what would have been what 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 the origins really of fruitcake were fruit breads so they were yeast risen and they were packed full of dried fruit so currants usually sometimes raisins uh, maybe a bit of, of uh, citrus peel that kind of thing and a little bit of sugar. Sugar at that point was still very, very expensive because it was still coming in from the East Indies rather than as later the West Indies. Um, and there was lots of spice as well. So ginger, which was relatively cheap, but also things like nutmeg and mace and cloves, coriander, that kind of thing. And those fruited breads were very similar in some ways to modern fruitcake, but they didn't last as well. And they were often very, very large as well. And they were, they were lovely. I mean, they, you know, I've made a few and they're very nice. Uh, and they were associated with festive occasions. So not just Christmas, but christenings or weddings or anything where you wanted a celebration because they were expensive, they were impressive and they tasted really, really nice. And one of the versions of that fruitcake that started to emerge was a thing called Twelfth Cake or King Cake or Bean right. Cake or Baby Cake. They've got lots of names. And that was eaten on Twelfth Night. And the idea was that you concealed within it a dried pea and a dried bean and the person who found the bean would be the bean king and the first the person that found the pea would be the pea queen and they would lead the feasting or they would be crowned for the night. It was all part and parcel of a lot of Twelfth Night rituals that were based on the subversion of the natural social order. So it was a similar thing where back in the Roman era, you'd elect a slave to be the leader of the household for the day and you had boy bishops and girl abbesses and there was a whole range of social rituals which were all about upheaval. And Twelfth Night cake, Twelfth Cake came into that. So that was the sort of this fruited bread with something concealed in it was really the start of what we would call Christmas cake. And as you go through time, you get to the 17th century, it's still very much yeasted cake, but the amount of sugar in it starts to go up and the amount of fruit in it goes up as well. And there are other tokens that join in as well. So instead of just having your bean and your pea, you might have a forked stick for the cuckold and a rag for the <laughs> slut in the old fashioned sense of the word, that kind of thing. And this goes on and on and on. And then in the 18th century, you start to get what I suppose we would recognise as fruitcake today. So the yeast by now is very, very small amounts and the cake itself is getting ever and ever fruitier and the tokens come out so it's still 12th cake mm. and also festive cake and bride cake and all these things it's still very much a, a festive cake but the 12th cake itself is evolving so you you now have packs of cards that you'd buy uh, so you'd go out and you'd buy a new pack of cards every year and they would be satires on the year's events so you'd have um, politicians satirized or you might have the king and the queen and you'd get kind of really bad jokes attached to it as well so <laughs> they're kind of the precursors of the of the um the christmas cracker jokes so I mean, a classic yes. example is something like, um, why is a pudding like a college? Because it is eaten. 
which is not funny to anybody, but <laughs> it is along the lines of those awful cracker jokes that you get. Uh, and then it sort of carries on. And by that point as well, the 12th cake is iced, so it usually has a crown on top, but it might have all sorts of things. There's a there's one brilliant depiction of 12th cakes, and it says that they've got all sorts of things from milkmaids to wishing wells to starfish to seahorses. and I mean, it's just absolutely bonkers. Um, and by the 19th century, the yeast has gone. So it's really in the Victorian era that the fruitcake that we would recognise, at least in Britain, starts to exist. And this is something that is so dense you could kill someone with it. That's right. It, it is huge. <laughs> it is packed full of fruit, often fruit soaked in booze. It is, I mean, it's stunning. A really The best recipe for fruitcake I know of is from 1842 in Charles Francatelli's Modern Cook. And it is the main fruit there is dried cherries. So it really packs a punch. And the cherries take down the sweetness a lot as well. There's lots and lots of citrus in there, loads of oranges, a lot of brandy. And yeah. with that one, you would then cover it with almond paste and then you would ice it either with a sort of pastillage style icing or with royal icing. So I tend to do it with royal icing. But it was still 12th cake or wedding cake as well. It's the same recipe. And mm. Queen Victoria had 12th cake every year. So this was a really, really big thing. The trouble is the Victorians got obsessed with Christmas as opposed to the 12 days of Christmas or the festive season. They were completely obsessed with one day. And 12th cake didn't fit. And 12th cake was also a bit dangerous. It was a bit uproarious. It was a bit sort of plebeian and associated with too much drinking. So slowly 12th cake became known as Christmas cake. And the whole idea of the pea and the bean and the cards and all the rest of it kind of dwindled until by the end of the 19th century, instead of having 12th cake, you had the same cake, but it was now called Christmas cake. And it kind of lost its way a bit, I think, because no one really knows when to eat Christmas cake these days. They're all a bit sort of like, well, do I eat it on Christmas Day? Do I eat it on Boxing Day? Do I invite my friends over? When do I cut it? What and there are I so, cut it with and, the wrong yes, friend? And also because there are so many other wonderful sweets that, you know, yeah, well, none of them are as good as fruitcake. I mean, let, yeah. let's let's be fair here. Yule log, fine, whatever. But it, <laughs> you can't beat a rich fruitcake, especially eaten with cheese, which is how I eat it, which is a, <laughs> oh, well. a Yorkshire habit. But, um, <laughs> that makes so, sense. You know, it, I mean, it's just a fantastic, fantastic thing. I mean, the, the recipes you get these days often involve feeding the cake with, with more alcohol, which I don't do because I think it's pointless. If you put enough booze in the cake in the first place, it's moist and you don't need to feed it. That's and right. it means as well you can ice it and get it done quite quickly and out the way and then and then you just just wade into it. It 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 should be something which has almost savoury notes to it because it's so rich and so beautiful but isn't too sweet and it should be moist but also um stay together as a slice. You know, it it, it is a, a really good rich fruit cake is a thing of divine beauty and it is probably the only Christmas food that I would say I can't live without. Yeah. And, and I actually, I too have made one that I, from, and I'm not sure whose recipe that was from at this point. It's escaping. I know. Yes, I do know. I can't remember her name, but it is, um, uh, it was one of the presidential cooks, um, an African-American, and it was sort of based on a Jamaican fruit yes, cake. Yes, the and black bun. it was bun. dark, oh, yeah, the black one, mm, yes. A friend of mine makes Jamaican black bun. Delicious. And she, yeah, so, well, delicious. she's from Guyana and she soaks her raisins in rum for the entire year and you <laughs> can't drive after you've eaten this stuff it's absolutely right. amazing yeah. but you well, wouldn't be able to ice it so i'm a bit like is it really a fruit cake because you can't not a christmas cake because you can't ice it it's too moist right and just mm. yes it melts apart well you know there are so many other um you know these as i said these idealized feasts that we have that, that became customs as you say a little before the victorian era or the victorian era certainly 
goose. Goose, well, you say turkey was popularized because of the American Thanksgiving, more or less, but it was always a goose. I mean, you always had to have a goose at Christmas, right? Yeah, especially if you're poor. Uh, if you were rich, it was beef. I mean, even beef. if you're poor, to be right. honest, beef was the big choice, not least because beef and plum pudding went together, and plum pudding is what we now call Christmas pudding, but those two were feast dishes, so you really wanted beef and plum pudding. But goose was very popular because it was in season. Um, anything that was a farmed fowl was in season because they're at their best, it was always said, from Michaelmas through to March. So goose was in season, turkey was in season, chicken was in season, um, peacock and game as well was very popular. Swan, another farmed bird that was in season that was regarded very much as a Christmas bird. Um, little little tough, little to, tough to find those today, yes. Yeah, slightly illegal as well. But, um, you know, <laughs> if you know someone with a flock, um, apparently it's not very nice. I think one of the reasons turkey became popular you know, it was because it's genuinely nicer than most of the other meats. But goose was a really good choice, and goose was very much a good choice if you were poor. So you had these things called goose clubs in the 19th century where people would join a club and they would pay into it all year, a little bit like a, a Christmas club today, which mm. today would often be about presents. But you would pay into this fund, and then for Christmas you would get your goose. Uh, there's a Sherlock Holmes story called The Blue Carbuncle, which revolves around a Christmas goose. And they're smaller than turkeys, so they were much more manageable for smaller family gatherings. I mean, today we have this kind of focus on family, big family gatherings. But actually before really the end of the 19th century, before the 20th century, really, most families didn't necessarily get together because if they were working class and they were scattered across Britain, you'd only get Christmas Day off and maybe Boxing Day if you were lucky. Mm -hmm. So you couldn't get together. And a lot of people worked in domestic service. So, of course, they were cooking for their employers. Uh, It was a huge employer. And it's, it's important to remember a lot of people worked on Christmas. Christmas Day then. So that cosy ideal of the family Christmas is really relatively modern. It's within the last 100 to 120 years that it's come together. And if you don't have a huge number of people, you can't eat a turkey. They were quite right. big. They are quite big. Yeah. We've bred smaller ones now, but and people didn't have big ovens. You know, you look at 1920s and 30s ovens, they're quite small. Um but a goose is fat enough and small enough you could roast it in front of a fire even if you didn't have a decent roasting range. You could put your goose in what was known as um a bottle jack oven, a smoke jack oven, not a smoke jack, bottle, a bottle jack or a clockwork jack, which are those sort of semicircular metal things you get sometimes right. in country houses right. with a clockwork jack on top. You, a goose will fit in those, a turkey won't. You can push that up against a fire and wind up your clockwork jack and you can roast your goose in front of your fire very satisfactorily, which you mm. wouldn't be able to do with a turkey. So goose was popular. And of course, the fact that it was self-basting because it comes with so much fat in it, it was That's really, right. really useful. Yeah. And it's tasty. Which was why it sort of fell out of fashion for a lot of people. It was, you know, so much of, of the grease, but... Um, yeah, I mean, fat was so demonised in the 1970s yes. and 80s, yeah. wrongly, but it, it still affects us today, this idea that fat is bad, that's kind of sunk into the popular psyche. But, I mean, you know, you can't beat goose fat potatoes, really. No. Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> Double I mean, those roasted. Are, those are wow. still very popular, no matter what people say. <laughs> very popular. Um, in fact, I found a wonderful recipe for... You know, that you have to make with goose because it's sort of like almost an instant confit of 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 the meat because there is so much fat. It just automatically confits itself, you know, it's a a great recipe. Well, you had mentioned uh, beef that, of course, if you were well, one family were wealthier, they would have beef uh, for their dinner. And I ran across a passage from uh, a Dickens um, uh, Christmas passage, but it's it's actually um, Dickens's. um, uh, story on Edwin Drood. 
And the passage, I'm going to read it to you because there are a couple of things in here I want you to talk about and explain to me. Um, so Edwin Drood says, I am a neat hand at cookery, and I'll tell you that I knocked up for my Christmas Eve dinner in the library cart. I knocked up a beefsteak pudding for one with two kidneys, a dozen oysters, and a couple of mushrooms thrown in. It's a pudding to put a man in good humor with everything, except the two bottom buttons of his waistcoat. Okay. <laughs> this is a beefsteak pudding that I am so curious about um, because it has all these things in it. Tell me when you say pudding and a beefsteak pudding, what are we talking about? A casserole? We're talking about a suet crust pudding at this point. Pudding okay. is, and pudding, you can't get more British than a pudding, and pudding means so many different things. Um, a plum pudding or a Christmas pudding would be lots of dried fruit, suet, effectively sort of like a cake mixture, but put into a mould and then boiled, steamed, boiled for um, nine or ten hours until it's set solid. And that is a pudding. But mm. A sausage is also a pudding because it's done in a, well, fat. Haggis is a pudding. Um, anything done in a mould is a pudding, but then you can boil puddings. Bake. It, it's very difficult to define a pudding. Yeah. Uh, everyone knows what they're not, but it's quite hard to say what they are. In that case, what it is, is a suet crust pudding. So what you would do is you would make a crust with suet, which is the hard fat that sits around the kidneys. Uh, you can buy it from butchers and you can also buy it online very easily in America. In Britain, it's so ubiquitous, you can buy it basically in the garage. Um, and you <laughs> chop it up or you buy it ready chopped. Uh, and your standard suet crust recipe would be eight ounces of plain flour, three ounces of suet, good pinch of salt and some cold water. And it's really, it's brilliant pastry because you can do anything with it. You can boil it, you can bake it, you can steam it, you can fry it. Um, and it's really easy and you don't need cold hands. So you bring it all together and then what you would do is you would grease a pudding basin, so just a normal bowl, roll out your pastry, put it in there, leaving about a third of it aside for the lid and then you would put in your filling. So in that case, he's using beef steak. Um, it wouldn't be the finest sirloin. You'd use whatever you've got to hand. Uh, oysters, which were really popular to have with beef in pies and puddings and they add a kind of umami note and really, really nice in them. Mushrooms mm -hmm. are great because they yield their liquid so that again they add a lot of flavour and the kidneys uh, well you, a, a classic standard British pudding today would be steak and kidney pudding anyway so right. the kidneys add again a depth to it so you chop them all up finely and normally you'd throw into there a little bit of flour to help thicken the gravy and maybe some brandy and some port and you'd season it all up and then you put the lid on so you roll the lid out squash it all down and then mm -hmm. put a pudding cloth on top which is normally just a standard tea towel or tea cloth which you wet squeeze out shake flour on it and put it on top with a kind of fold so the pudding can expand and then you tie that on and you put it into your bowl of boiling water, your pot of boiling water. And I would say for a pudding like that, if you used, say, a two-pint pudding basin, you'd give it about two or three hours. And what happens is the filling steams inside that pastry. So it's like a really good, long, slow-cooked stew inside this amazing pastry. And the really cool thing is you can serve it as is with the pastry cooked like that, but mm -hmm. you can also give it sort of, 20 minutes just to set a little bit and turn it out and then put it in the oven to crisp the pastry oh, and at yeah. that point you get this incredible flaky crispy gorgeous pastry that then sort of molds into the pudding and goes into mush by the time you get into the middle so it's all beautiful and kind of gooey and then you get this incredible thick unctuous gravy surrounding all those lumps of meat and oysters and it's just it's absolutely fantastic i mean you can use the same technique with anything you can do veal and ham you can do pork and 
apple or pork and quince you can do you know you name it it will it will take to that cooking you can do vegetable versions as well with things like chopped potato and parsnip and aubergine all put in there with lots of seasonings well this one was described so specifically it just uh it captured my imagination and i i started salivating when i started thinking about it a bit you know those oysters you know there are a couple of the dishes i want to ask you about and then i know you will be able to shed light on but we're going to take a quick break so stay with us and when we come back we'll ask annie gray to talk more about christmas food Essex Market is a historic public market located on Manhattan's Lower East Side. The market's 30-plus vendors source thousands of unique products, like locally made Jersey cheese to Nordic smoked specialties. This holiday season, Essex Market is offering five carefully curated gift boxes. Feast on the finest products from their family of small business owners. And that's great news for the team at HRN because we're always searching for unique gifts this time of year. Plus, these gift boxes are available for nationwide shipping now through December 18th. Send a taste of New York City to your loved ones both near and far and get 10% off when you enter promo code HRN10 at checkout. Visit shop.essexmarket.nyc to learn more and to start sending some food-filled holiday cheer today. Hello, this is Dave McCallan, and I'm the host of Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview extraordinary women in the world of food and wine. And I've expanded this season to create Giving Broadly, a website devoted to amazing products by extraordinary women entrepreneurs. Check it out for great gifts and ways to amp up your cooking this season. That's givingbroadly.com. Hi, we're back, and I'm speaking with Annie Gray. She is the queen of food historians in Britain. Well, anywhere, really, for that matter, especially talking about the Victorian period. And today we are talking about Christmas food, foods of Christmas past, let's say, because so many of us are so busy or our families are splintered or in all different parts. And, of course, during COVID, we don't have a lot of our family around. And we're not cooking up all the food that we might normally do if we had everybody with us. Um, Annie, we talked about fruitcakes, of course, and back to sweets. There are so many wonderful sweets. Um, You created recently a wonderful sweet. I saw you posted a picture of it on your Twitter feed. Um, Was that a tipsy cake? What was it? (laughs) Yes. Were you tipsy? Uh, <laughs> I'm sure by the end of it, you were tipsy. I was hammered well. by the end of it, quite frankly. Um, yeah, tipsy. I'm. I'm not a very secret trifle hater. Um, mm. And as part of this this Christmas book that I'm writing, which is um, due out next year rather than this year, obviously, um, I decided I needed to tackle trifle head on. Uh, trifle is, for some reason, something that British people tend to associate with Christmas uh, and other times of the year. But people eat trifle. I and I 
can't cope with it. But I thought if I'm going to do trifle, I'm going to really do trifle. And tipsy cake is kind of the ultimate trifle. Um, it's an early 19th century concept that is very popular right up until the end of the 19th century. And the name lives on after it. But <laughs> the essential version of it is you take a fatless sponge cake, which is molded. That's sort of really key. So um, I used a 19th century Savoy cake mold, which is a very specific style of mold, which is quite tall and has a flat surface. But you could use a bunt mold. Uh, and you make a very light fatless sponge and you let it go stale so you leave it for a week or so and then you pierce holes in it and you soak it in booze um most of the older recipes use brandy some of the more modern ones and by modern i mean kind of 1870s uh use white wine so i think i did 75 25 white wine um sort of brandy and and, and hock so anyway you soak it in whatever booze you've got to hand basically mm-hmm. And then you stick almonds into the holes that you created. And that's your basic version. But it gets kind of madder as it goes through the 19th century. So the garnishes in particular get more and more insane. And I built it up. So I did my basic cake and I put custard around it, which is what you'd always serve it with, and stuck it with its almonds. And did one version that was just plain like that. The next version had ratafia biscuits all around it, so little amaretti biscuits, which improved it because then you have... Um, alcohol soaked sponge cake custard almonds and the crunch of the biscuits which works right, really well right and then the next iteration had uh, glacé cherries applied and then uh, there was candied peel that went on for the next one and then it finally ended up with sort of angelica everywhere as well so it got more and more insane but actually more and more delicious because the candied fruit really added to it it gave it a kind of depth that it didn't just have with soggy cake but it's, um, I was almost converted to trifle from it, I have to say. It was very, very alcoholic. You didn't need much. <laughs> but it looked amazing because you have the height from the cake. And anything yes. moulded always looks good on the table. So I think one of the big secrets to making food look really, really good is to mould it. If it's a pudding, mould it. If it's an ice cream, mould it. Uh, whatever it is, put it in a mould. It'll always look good and create a wow factor. And because this was moulded and had height and spikes... It was it was an extraordinary looking beast and it tasted fantastic. Mm. Um, well, one other thing I wanted to t- talk about, it was re- actually quite beautiful, I have to say. It really was. Um, uh, I wanted to talk about mince pies. And it's something, mince and mince meat, of course, is something that uh, has changed dramatically over the centuries. Um but mince pie is is really still quite popular, especially in in Britain. You see a lot of oh, it yeah. in the Northeast a lot here, uh, but without the meat. Yeah, in, in the UK, it doesn't have meat in anymore, which is mm-hmm. a shame, I think. Uh, mincemeat started off really in the sort of medieval, late medieval era. There was a, a vogue for recipes at the time, which were what we would call today a kind of mishmash of sweet and savoury but because sugar was so expensive at that point it was used much more like a spice so the flavours that you get in the late medieval era often mix spices and meat and sugar all together and dried fruit as well and eventually by the Tudor era they develop into a thing either called minced pies or shred pies sometimes and they become associated with Christmas because of all those flavours and because of the richness and because they're expensive to produce and at that point they probably have around a third to two thirds meat in 
It's usually something like mutton or beef, but you could also get versions that had fish in for fast days. So when the church prohibited meat eating, there were versions with eggs as well. So all sorts of things. Um, And that meat level sort of dwindles slowly over the next 200 years or so. So by the time you get to the 18th century, you've got not much meat in them at all. And the meat by that point often is veal based. So it could be a calf's foot. It could be a veal tongue, a bit more subtle, a bit less punchy than beef. And then you kind of continue forward until the mid 19th century. The recipes have got very, very low levels of meat in and some are meat free, but they still they often still retain a little bit. So one of my favourites is that of Eliza Acton, who was writing in the 1840s. That's right. If you make her full recipe, it's two and a half stone of mincemeat, of which a pound is beef. So really not very much beef to the level of, of dried fruit and other ingredients. But what it does is it does give you a really nice back note. And I think today a lot of people go, ew, meat in with my dried fruit, that's <laughs> horrific. But it's not, and it, it does make sense. I mean, if you think about it, a traditional mincemeat will have suetin, which is an animal product although obviously you can buy vegetarian suet and you can also replace it with butter although uh, it's a slightly different effect but you know it, it does help I think I think adding if you buy shop-bought mincemeat and just chop into it a little bit of tongue or a little bit of rare beef it does really add to it in my view well it's and, and of course they're so rich also that even without the meat it's a very rich um, paste of of the fruits and 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 the um, yeah, you don't. That want they're made into very ones. small, very small pies, individual pies often. Yeah, they are now. I mean, the Tudors would make them into huge pies, and then they would scoop out the middle. Um, but yeah, the modern ones. I mean, a lot of modern mincemeat is very insipid as well. A lot of it's very mm, liquid, mm, and it's mm. overly sweet. A lot of modern mincemeats are very, very sweet. Whereas if you go back a little bit, they're more inclined to be based on lemon, for example. There's some very, very good recipes from the 19th century where you boil an entire lemon and then you chop it up and add that to your mincemeats. So Ooh, they nice. are a lot more flavoursome. They're much, much nicer, I would say, historic recipes than the modern ones um, because they are just slightly less rich so you can eat more of them, which is always a bonus. Well, for Christmas food and and your work that you're doing on it, what is a dish that we should definitely talk about before we leave? Hmm. Apart from the 12th cake, which we've already talked about, which yes. I'm very much on a campaign to bring back, it's got to be said, um, there is a dish called hacking, which I'm quite fond of. Um, it's sort of related to mincemeat. It's sort of related to plum pudding in that it is meat, but it also has dried fruit with it and normally a teaspoon of sugar for sort of a pound and a half of meat. And you can make it, the, the rest, there's not very many recipes for it. It was a very regional dish. It was a, a Yorkshire and a Cumbria dish. Uh, and you would make it by effectively making a kind of sausage of um beef usually and dried fruit and various spices and a bit of suet and you roll it up into a sausage shape roll it in a cloth and then you boil it and the usual thing was that you would then slice it and fry it to have it for breakfast on Christmas day Uh, and I like the beef version quite a lot but I decided to try and do a riff on it because while I love historic recipes it's also nice to play with them and to use them as a way of building so I did a turkey and cranberry version and I have to say 
it was an absolute knockout. So I'm uh, I'm quite keen to do that again. Uh, this year's Christmas, I'm going to do pizza, believe it or not. Um, because if you're going to be d- different this year, then why not be really different and embrace <laughs> the stuff you really love? And we've got a pizza oven outside in the garden. So I'm going to do a stuffing pizza um, and uh, various others. But I'm strongly considering doing myself a turkey and cranberry hacking pizza, which would be sort of 1780 meets 1960 meets 2020 so absolutely (laughs) insane and it just seems to me to be entirely fitting for this year well it is there's just there are so many everyone has their own their own celebrations their own special foods that they make and it's interesting to know that it all derives from you know from a, a common celebration that uh that did involve food and a lot of it when it was abundant and uh, I think one thing that I that I um, am missing this year. I am missing a fruit cake. I didn't make a fruit cake. Uh, it's not please... too late. It's not too late. <laughs> Quick! It's not too late. Quick! <laughs> they it's say not. you're supposed to start it right after the last Christmas, as you, you know. Oh no, 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 no! It's absolutely <laughs> fine. I mean, good. No, no, no! You can make them. Trust me. You know, I've seen all the recipe books from the past. You can make it on Christmas Eve, uh, and especially if you don't want to ice it, or even if you do, just whap a layer of marzipan on it and some quick icing. You know, it's never too late for fruit cake. And anyway, even if it was, you could make one and have it on Twelfth Night and call it Twelfth Cake. There you go. Yeah, I think that's that's the answer. All right. Well. I and I I'm sorry that we can't all be together and and that those of you out there please be careful and and if you're thinking about having that extra couple of people over uh, think twice it's just next christmas you can have a really big celebration all right and I wish all of you what dickens was striving for and that was a way to uh encapsulate the spirit of giving and peace and goodwill and of course we want to stress health and safety as well thank you so much annie always a font of knowledge for anything i come up with and i appreciate the time that you've given to me for this and and those of you out there i wish you all and annie you as well a very happy holiday season and thank you for listening to a taste of the past A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.